0: Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica,
1: And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. If you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us.
0: Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X, and now TikTok. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. We're currently on our holiday break for the next two weeks. So we're resharing a couple of our favorite earlier shows. In today's episode, we looked at the two most famous and perhaps most polarizing holiday songs from the Solo Beatles Paul's Wonderful Christmas Time and John's Happy Xmas War is Over. Back when we recorded this in 2018, hating on Wonderful Christmas Time was practically a national pastime. So many articles were being written with the sole objective of trashing it, and it routinely made lists of the all time worst Christmas songs ever. We had some thoughts about that. We counteract the haters with an argument of our own, and then we contrast Wonderful Christmas Time with John's version of the holiday classic. And on the surface, these two songs are about as opposite as they could be, but maybe they aren't as different as they seem. And because the events we talk about as current, actually happened five years ago, we've included links to everything we reference in the show notes. So enjoy the episode, and happy Crimble to those who celebrate!
1: It is the holiday season. It's creeping up on us all uh, very close now. And in celebration of that, we're spotlighting two songs that, while they're very, very well known in the Beatles canon and outside of the Beatles canon, they're super different, but they're more alike in the fact that they're very polarizing for lots of different reasons. So, of course, we're going to talk about Paul's wonderful Christmas time and John's Happy Xmas War is Over. So let's start with Paul, because, you know, this is obvious. This always gets included on like the worst Christmas songs ever list. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting tune, right?
0: Yeah, let's go there. Let's
1: go there. Let's go. (laughs) Let's do. Okay. well, gloves are off, apparently. Yeah. Erica's like dispensing with the niceties.
0: I've had a problem with the haters (laughs) on the song for years.
1: Shit's getting real.
0: Wonderful Christmas time, holiday staple, if you have been to a mall or a drugstore or anywhere in the Christmas season, you hear it.
1: Yep, I heard it in Burlington the other day, not to brag.
0: I'm jealous. It's a great song. (laughs) And for some reason, which is probably the same reason that people just hate on Paul for other things, people write about this song about how it is the worst song in the Christmas canon. Okay. (laughs) I get it. I get it. Uh, a little background before I get into my rant, because this is a Rage Rant time. I'm really excited about this, by the way. Yeah, it's a total Rage Rant. <laughs> so good. So Wonderful Christmas Time was written during the 1979 sessions for the McCartney 2 album. Um, but it was released on its own. And if you ask what album it's on, it's never quite sure, because it was on its own. And then it was in the 1993 re-release of Back to the Egg. But then it was on the 2013 remastered McCartney 2. So kind of it's kind of fluid, kind of flips in and out. But I like to think about it more as um, part of McCartney too. It just gels more for that with me. Paul played all of the instruments on the tracks. Uh, even though you see Wings members in the music video, which is <laughs> such a strange music video, just like almost all of other Paul's other music videos. But it's it's a really fun combination of you know state of the art 1979 digital effects and a scene that probably could have been a holiday party at Jim Mac's house when Paul was a teenager. So. Cool stuff, check it out. Actually, like to me the, the video like is the epitome of the song. So I think it's one of
1: the most successful videos Paul has had. Just say And we'll share it for sure. I yeah. mean it's Christmas week. We gotta share this.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great. So yeah, it's one of the most polarizing songs, not only among the Beatles community, but among people who listen to Christmas songs. People just they, they hate. <laughs> Which is
1: Which is, like, fucking everybody, because you can't escape Christmas music. Everybody who goes into any
0: store, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, no, not between Halloween and Christmas, has probably heard it. So, (laughs) a couple of years ago, there was a lot of hate about this song. One writer, Jezebel, said, It sounds like how it feels to be over-caffeinated and lightheaded in the middle of Macy's Black Friday sale after being awake for 24 hours. It's manic, stupid, and overstimulating, while simultaneously <laughs> uh, leaving the listener wondering
1: if anything at all has meaning. That's a lot of like existential dread and anxiety to assign to a uh, you know wonderful Christmas time. But yeah, uh, no but I get it. <laughs>
0: I get it. I get it too. And I'll admit, like I am ranting about this, but I did not like this song for many years because it felt to me on kind of a superficial listen. And really, it's not on any album, so you only hear it once a year so you're not thinking about it and it comes back and you're like oh god it's overproduced synthesizer bullshit for Paul McCartney when he was trying to make something that sounded hip with the times but it's actually kind of drivel that is certainly a
1: take on it correct me if i'm wrong but i honestly feel like the wonderful christmas time hate has come like like you said the last 2 years i don't remember it like 10 years ago being like this like i don't think it was super popular but i don't remember it being like this is the number one worst christmas song of all time Level of hate.
0: Yeah, I think there's kind of been a rise between the popularity of the song in the general Christmas time ethos and also the hate. There have been some more defenses of it lately, which makes me very happy. And so I'm going to add one to that. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) So, once really took a time to listen to it and past my knee-jerk hatred of synthy production, which I really do hate, like, 80s synthy production. This is actually a great song, and it's it's a microcosm of Paul McCartney as an artist in a lot of ways. It's awesome, and this is why haters need to back off about it. First, it is not cheesy. It's experimental. So the same people who rediscovered McCartney 2 around 2014 as the second coming of McCartney's, like, brilliance as an experimental artist... Also, kind of have to consider this in the same vein. So at the time he was experimenting with these synthesizers that become a staple of progressive rock. And they but they had only just started to become popular because Paul, as as we know, like he really he's always looking for new things, he's always playing with new things. And so what kind of sounds maybe cheesy to us and maybe not totally finished was actually Paul kind of leading the way in experimentation with things that were at the time out of the mainstream and, of course, out of Paul's, like, stereotypical classic wheelhouse. But they ended up being a staple of of a movement in music. So, you know, if you place that song, you know, among those songs, it kind of loses some of that, oh, it's so cheesy kind of
1: feel. I could see that because the whole McCartney 2 thing, like you said, it's, had, it's really... Maybe not still having its moment, but it it surely did, especially when Paul started incorporating more than the McCartney two tracks like Temporary Secretary into his pre-roll before his shows. And that got really popular. Yeah,
0: and even into his live shows. Yeah,
1: it's such a good track. Anyway, I wonder, I mean, it takes a lot of guts to make a techno, synth-heavy, like sort of Temporary Secretary that's a Christmas song. Like, that's, (laughs) that's really funny. If you think about it in that context, like, it totally frames that whole argument of Paul as an innovator.
0: I think we have to add this to our modern McCartney playlist if we do it again at the Fest for Beatles fans. Ooh,
1: that's a good idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's something that I think people shouldn't dismiss as cheese or as just holiday. Building off that, let's talk for a minute about the vocals. So if you listen to it, both Paul's voice and the background voices, which most of them actually are Paul's, they sound a little bit more casual than most of his vocals. Um, The delivery, you know, the lyrics are not amazing. You know, they're Christmas lyrics. And Paul is not always 100% on top of brilliant lyrics in his songs. You know, he's looking for a sound more than perfect poetry. And we know that about Paul. But I think what sounds to some people as lazy or sloppy, I actually think it's intentional because if you hear it, Think about it less as lazy and more as warm and welcoming and giving off this Christmas vibe while in the background still dabbling in this very new and almost inhuman sounding synth that he used for it. So it's really weird. The juxtaposition is kind of jarring, but at the same time, it gives this very like cozy, joyful very
1: Paul McCartney feel, like it's very Paul. If you think about like a Christmas song, simple lyrics mean that anybody can sing along to it. A wonderful Christmas time gets stuck in your head like instantly, which is a blessing and a curse, right? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the point, right? You learn it quickly. You can sing it with your friends. You can go caroling, whatever it is for holiday time. So... For that, Paul's talent there works pretty well. It's
0: actually pretty hard, I think, to have a Christmas song enter the Christmas canon. You know, we're still very fixated on the old standards, the Nat King Cole and Andy Williams and all of these things that, you know, my parents listened to and then I have always listened to. And some things have been added, like, all I want for Christmas is you is now a staple. From probably, what, the mid-90s, I think that showed up? Probably. It's not easy to get yourself into the Christmas canon, and this song made it there. As much as there is a negative backlash, it's a huge hit. There are a lot of people who really do like it. I mean, when it came out, it ranked number six in the UK charts first year out. It didn't chart in the US, so I think the UK did have more of an affinity for it than we did over on this side. But um, more and more, it continues to be a holiday staple. And a couple of years ago, Forbes estimated that Paul makes on average about $500,000 from this one song
1: alone every year. Not too shabby.
0: No, no. It can't be that bad. No. I would think that the worst Christmas song in the world would just kind of be dropped from playlists. There's no reason to keep
1: talking about something that sucks that much. Right. I mean, unless you're hating on it. But
0: that's an interesting thing about paul generally i mean that's like paul's almost part of his mythology in that the polarization of his music is so prevalent even now and especially in you know the 70s through the 90s if paul mccartney did this song this reaction may always be there no matter what if another artist did this song i don't know if the smiths did this song I don't know where it would be, but I don't feel like anybody would be putting it on the most hated tracks of the world.
1: That's true. And you think about some of the other synth-heavy Christmas songs, um, you know, Wrapping Paper comes to mind. Also, gosh, I think there's a cover of Baby, Please Come Home. It's also a very synth-heavy, sort of like the wispy vocals, that kind of like, I, I think that owes a debt to Wonderful Christmas Time as well. Oh, I'm
0: sure. And I think its popularity also has to come from the fact that it's just kind of built in this snowballing way, you know, nobody really covered it much, maybe two or three until about 2006. And then all of a sudden people started rediscovering it and more and more covers came out of the song. So we're not only hearing Paul's version, but we're hearing probably 15 or 20 other covers of this song. Um, Some of my favorites are Kylie Minogue's 2016 cover, the monkeys just put it out this year on their 2018 Christmas album Christmas Party, and Mickey sounds so good on
1: it, it's more acoustic. Slight plug, check that album out, because it sort of snuck out, uh, but it's great.
0: My personal favorite is the Shins 2012 cover from the Holidays Rule Christmas album. Paul himself is actually on that doing um, the Christmas song Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, but I really feel like the Shins cover of the song is brilliant, and it's absolutely like the perfection of the song. So... It's still there. It's still everywhere in the public consciousness, not only from covers, but from Paul himself. It's a great song as it is. But when Paul brings it out live, it's wonderful. It's a sing along. Like, Alison, as you said, like, everyone knows the words and it's so much fun. Just as we speak, like today they did that. You know, he's still singing it in concerts. Four days ago, he performed it in Liverpool, backed by kids from the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts Choir. So it's still out there. You know, Paul himself is still doing it. And really, even if you do hate it, it's not by far Paul's worst Christmas song. For that. Oh, no. Please see <laughs> Rudolph the Red Nose Reggae.
1: Yuck. Can can we pretend that never existed? Yeah. Don't go Spotify that shit. Paul does not deserve your point zero zero one cent for listening to Rudolph the Red Nose Reggae. <laughs> If it's even on there, I hope not. It is. <laughs> oh, God, no. It is. I had to check just to see if I was imagining <sighs> that hellhole, but it's there. Yeah, right? I think that was like a fever dream.
0: Yeah. What I will direct you to, though, is Paul singing at This Week with the kids from the Lipa Choir, and it's so heartwarming. If you are Ebenezer Scrooge himself, I think you might learn to love the meaning of Christmas just by watching this. So.
1: Aw, didn't he make it snow, too, during that yeah. performance? Yeah.
0: Aw, that's oh, so really, nice. They're
1: really cute.
0: Those are my arguments. I lay it out. Feel free to at me. I would love to talk about this with anybody <laughs> who's out there. I love this song. I'm open to hearing other arguments,
1: but I'll fight you. That's funny. I mean, I know that you're a grand Paul apologist, oh, as we always say. Yikes. Oh, yikes. yikes. Um, but, you know, I can't believe you have me kind of defending before Christmas time. No, I don't have that, like, visceral repulsion to it, because I think I got on the boat before it was cool to hate it. The first time I heard it, and this all this is embarrassing to say, but I think I heard it on the Now That's What I Call Christmas compilation, probably in 2000 or 2001, whatever, because I had just become a Beatles fan in 2000. So um, that would have been right around that time, I think. And that was like the cool, the cool, you know, the Now compilations mm-hmm. um, for modern music. So it's like Paul's on there, the song, you know, I really liked it. I would love to know what flipped the Switch I think you might be right, you know, in your sort of idea of what that happened, but it's just, it seems like every year it's more and more like, oh, God damn, this song, like, I can't stand it. Like, I can't, I don't want to hear it even once. It's not that bad. Suck it up.
0: (laughs) But I'd like to say for, in the past couple of years, for every person who's out there hating it, there's at least one and a half people who were saying, hey, wait, you know what? I'm going to look at this in light of some other things and kind of re-examine it. And I do feel like, the tide is is turning. And maybe that's because of the help that they get from all these covers, from all of the different ways that people see it out there. So from the Shins' 2012 cover to the monkeys to Kylie Minogue, you know, it's just out there more in the ethos and you're hearing it in different ways, which is, to me, another staple of Paul that at the core of what Paul does, it is so classic that you can reimagine it. You can hear new things in it, but it's still that classically Paul at
1: its core. And I think also what you just did is really important, too, which is you frame it in context. When you put it with McCartney 2, that changes the whole game because then you're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. I don't know why, but I always tend to think of it as like pre-McCartney 2, where it makes even less sense because it's like in the Wings period. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why. Well, because it was part of the Back to the Egg sessions. Yeah, that's I mean, that's probably why I like kind of picture it in that gap but when you put it later then it's like okay yep that makes sense and i'm magically okay with it because mm-hmm. that was paul at that point
0: yeah and all of a sudden he's this crazy cool innovator and how awesome is that
1: maybe part of the reason too like people maybe maybe switching coming around to it it's like paul is finally kind of getting his due you know as not just the the cute one with the granny music you know and like the little ditties but he was the experimental beetle like yeah. way before anybody else.
0: I'm going to bring it back to something that Rob Sheffield said in our last episode about Paul, which he says in his book, Dreaming the Beatles. And he says, tell me about your Paul McCartney and I'll tell you who you are. And I'm paraphrasing that. But I would love to hear from the people who both love this song and hate the song. And I would love to hear what they think about the song and also
1: what they think about it in context of Paul McCartney's canon as a whole. That's a good question. Definitely tweet us, comment, post on our Facebook wall, email us, whatever strikes your fancy. Yeah, let's talk about wonderful Christmas time. Yeah.
0: And let's talk about another song that's maybe not quite as merry, but just as significant. Happy Christmas War is Over.
1: It's out in the world at the moment. Obviously, last night being on SNL and, uh, you know, talking about the anniversary of the billboards and all that kind of thing. But Happy Xmas War is Over, like I said before, released in 1971 in the U.S. In the U.K., it was held up a little bit longer because of Yoko's co-write on it. So it got snagged in the Northern songs, publishing debacle. It was a mess anyway. But it postponed it for a year. So in the UK, released in 1972, credited to Johnny Yoko. They both have a co-write on it. And they're also named, they're both named as producers, along with your friend and mine, Phil Spector. And I actually didn't realize that. I think because when you hear Happy Excess War is Over, you don't hear the really thick, sort of soupy production that Phil Spector is known for as much. But as you start breaking down the song, you get little hints of it, which we'll talk about in a minute.
0: That's crazy. I was listening to the Phil Spector Christmas album last night. Guilty Which pleasure. is the best.
1: No, no, that's the best Christmas album. It's not a guilty pleasure. That's Love just, it. it is what it is. Yeah.
0: But I would never think about this song in context with that album and with his production style.
1: Right? Yeah. And i it's funny, I was listening to a lot, or listening to, uh, reading a lot of accounts of the sessions and that kind of thing, like contemporary accounts written as they were happening. And it's so funny how often Phil Spector would like, Name check his own music. And it's kind of embarrassing. It's like, oh yeah, like let's make this sound like the chiffons or whatever. And it's like, dude, like we know you produce this stuff. And he would talk about you know Christmas gift for you all the time. And it's like, yes, we get it. (laughs) We get it, Phil Spectre. You produce this album, you produce a lot of amazing music, whatever. Anyway, so this single comes, it's the second consecutive single after Imagine, which is interesting when you think about that. And it was sort of the little brother, I think of, of it as the little brother to Imagine. Because John took a lesson from Imagine, which is you could take a message, frame it in this sort of ooey-gooey, he called it like a bit of honey song, and get it to the people, make it palatable for the masses. So he wanted to do that again with Happy Xmas Wars Over. And that's probably where he sort of was like, okay, I'm going to take this message that we came up with two years ago and put it out there as a song make it like a nice little tune, and there we go. But at the same time, John, as he usually does, is very contradictory, and he said he wrote it because he, quote-unquote, was sick of White Christmas. So, whatever. It, it depends on which John you believe on which day. So, a lot of people obviously have heard this track, but have you ever flipped over the single? I had not until today and heard Listen, to The Snow Is Falling on the B-side. It's a Yoko song. Yoko wrote it. She wrote it in 1968. The first song she ever showed to John when they got together. It's actually really decent. It's a nice little Christmas song. Nothing really complex. Definitely has more of that Phil Spector production style. If you're kind of hungry for that, got tons of Christmas bells, sleigh bells, and there's a really great account um, written by a journalist who was there for the sessions about how aggressive she was in the production. And by that I mean like bossing around the musicians and like really kind of heavy handing the vision for this song, which I think is. Kind of refreshing, especially when you're dealing with somebody like Phil Spector. In like the Yoko and I could stand up to him. Good job, Yoko. <laughs> so flip that over, take a listen. And we'll post a link on our social so you can take a listen. So getting back to Happy Christmas. So background vocals were from the Harlem Community Choir. And apparently May Pang's on there somewhere as well. To teach these kids, a lot of them were 11, 12, 13, age range. <laughs> John and Yoko taught them the lyrics using a blackboard which is like one of the best mental images I've ever had ever of Johnny Yoko. And for the players, some of the usuals are there. Nicky Hopkins on piano chimes and glockenspiel. Jim Keltner, old stalwart LA session musician on drums. Uh, Interestingly, Hugh McCracken, who was just on RAM at this point, was there. Originally, Klaus Foreman was supposed to play bass. Didn't get in in time for Happy Xmas, but he did make it for Listen, the Snow is Falling. uh, So he's on the B-side. The direction that John gave to the band was just pretend it's Christmas. And then one of the band members says, I'm Jewish. And so John <laughs> says, well, pretend it's your birthday then, which is classic John Lennon. Of course, this is a direct protest song about Vietnam. That's pretty obvious. Um, the tune, interestingly, is based on a traditional English ballad called Screwball. Um, and there's a version of this, I think called Stewball by Peter, Paul and Mary, that kind of closely matches this in the tune like frame. <gasps>
0: Uh-oh, Stubal was a racehorse.
1: Yes! Yep, 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 yep. That's it. You got it. <laughs> never made that connection before this. Yeah, right? I didn't, I never thought about that. But it's funny because as I'm talking about Phil Spector sort of talking about his own work all the time, both John and Phil Spector said that it was loosely based on the Paris sisters hit, I Love How You Love Me, particularly the opening line, which if you think about it, in that song, it's acapella done, you know, I love how you love uh-huh, you know, and the opening line of Happy Xmas" is. So this is Christmas. um, Yeah, I never thought about that before I read it, but I did have to LOL a little bit because of the whole them copping a girl group song and then George later getting really hit (laughs) for my sweet Lord. Oh, George. I know. And driving home that fact a little bit more, John told journalist Richard Williams, I like quoting from old songs, but you get into such trouble with copyrights. It's a drag. And I'm sure George read that and was like, fuck you. (laughs) So there's that girl group influence, I guess, if you want to like say it, if you want to agree with John and Phil, I don't know. I don't really hear it, but I guess if I want to really listen hard, I could hear something. Yeah, I don't really hear it either. Uh, But there are also um, some elements that are based directly on, that were intentionally based on other girl group songs. One of them um, that they sort of copied a little bit in the quick mandolin strums that are the beat of the song throughout. Mm -hmm. They based that directly on a song by Ronnie Spector, that had just come out, I think also in 1971, called Try Some, Buy Some, which was written and produced by George Harrison. Uh, That's so funny. And she still does that in concert, which I always love. I'm a huge Ronnie Spector fan. So whenever she breaks out Try Some, Buy Some, it's like, yes. And uh, she's also got great Beatles stories. And they also sort of approximated a lot of the percussion in Happy Xmas with the the stuff you hear on certain tracks on A Christmas Gift For You. So one of the... (laughs) craziest facts about the song and it's not even that scandalous but it was the first christmas song released by a solo Beatle, which is really weird like i you know you would yeah. not think the first one to come out of the christmas track you know i'm sure he really just meant it purely as a protest song whatever but it still stands i really would have thought it was ringo i thought ringo would be all over that shit me too but, but ringo is the last one yeah this is the first one definitely predates wonderful christmas time predates george's ding dong ding dong but yeah i mean like you were talking about with wonderful christmas time this has entered the canon also and it's become this real staple at christmas regardless of what's going on or what's happening in the political world or the social world whatever but it's everywhere it's everywhere you can't escape it and it's strange that it sort of like is also in the same vein of like these warm and fuzzy christmas songs and then you have this like really polarizing political anthem. It's a strange song for Christmas. It's
0: a strange song for the kind of vibe that commercial Christmas likes to portray. It's not a strange vibe for, maybe if you think about
1: what the true meaning of Christmas is. True. If you go by the whole, like, you know, peace on earth, it's a direct hit to that, I Mm -hmm. think.
0: I feel like maybe it was a product of its time and... It doesn't feel relevant when we're still in very much the same place as maybe we were back then. And and I can definitely see the argument where people would say, well, then, of course, it's just as relevant as it ever was because we're in the same place as we are then. But I, I guess I kind of feel like. What is this doing? How is this helping? If we hear this at Christmas, maybe pe- we stop and think, but is this really going to be an anthem that makes people think about peace and activism in the same way that Imagine was in the same way that even revolution was. And in the same way that of course, folk songs and, and a much larger tradition, than the Beatles of anti-war type of songs and you know, that go along with movements. But to me, I just don't, you know, maybe it's just a matter of opinion. I don't, I don't feel like hitting it at Christmas is the right time to hit
1: the message. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I do get it. I think it has been sanitized a lot because it is a Christmas song. I think perhaps if it were more evergreen, you know, for any time of the year, it would pack more of a punch, but I think I think the message is so really relevant. I think going back to, you know, Miley Cyrus singing it last night on SNL and changing the lyrics to fit today's spectrum, that's really important. I think, you know, it's repurposing the message for a new era, but it does drive home the fact that it's like how many years later, and we're still singing about this shit, you know, and it's still resonating. It resonated with me. I got a little bit choked up, you know, watching that performance uh, for a lot of reasons. But a big part of it is like, yeah, like it's 2018 is we're over <laughs> if we want it. You know, it's the same, the same shit.
0: I want war to be over, but it's not as simple as that. And it's not going to ever be. And the holiday season is not a time to mobilize people. It's not the time to spread that message because people are not going to take it with them.
1: Right. Because they're not tuned into that sort of wavelength at this time of the year.
0: And after forty plus years, war is not over. And many of us want it. And saying that it's over if we want it doesn't do anything.
1: What But what? that was kind of like Johnny Yoko's whole thing, wasn't it? It's like the bed in it's very passive activism. You know, it's not like go out and like kill groups of people that you hate. It's, it's sort of like, okay, bed in for peace. Like Lay in bed and talk about peace, think about peace. And John's famous quote of like, everybody wanted peace or peace, you know, wars over if you want it. It's that very sort of like generalized passive activism.
0: Right, which I think is a great thing of its time. But I feel like those of us who want peace uh, can't be passive about it anymore. And I think that's what kind of gets me is that in in our age, and yeah, this is going to be political, but whatever, with Trump, with the way that policy changes so quickly, you know, how can we do this? How can we sit back and say, well, I want peace when all of these things are happening in front of us? There aren't enough people in the world who hear the message and say, oh, yeah, I want peace. There are still so many people who say, I don't care. And in order to help change minds and hearts and change the outcome of elections, we have to do something.
1: No, I agree. I tot- I mean, I totally agree. But, you know, don't you feel like this could be a good sort of jumping off point where it's like war's over if, if I want it, but how do I get there? You know, what can I do? And I-, I get it. Like, ideally, that's the ideal effect, right? It- but it's not probably going to happen, like, if we're realistic about it.
0: Yeah, I don't think I have a problem with the message. I think I just feel like giving that message during the holiday season when... The Christmas songs that you hear in the holiday season, of course, you know them your whole life, and when they come back every year, you know every word, but you don't think about them for the rest of the year. So I feel like a message that's given in the context of a Christmas song may not permeate in the same way as a message that is separated from the Christmas ethos and the Christmas spirit. Even though I think they meant very well and I understand what they were doing, I just don't think
1: people take it with them and I wish they would. See, I I don't know. I sort of disagree because I think it's so different than what you hear on the radio. If this is like sandwiched between like Frosty the Snowman and Jingle Bells, you know, it's completely different, you know, and it's more, I think, jarring. It's a think piece for Christmas. And yeah, people are tuned out this time of year. They're kind of just focused on, you know, parties and, and holiday stuff. But I think it's also just like a nice little subtle reminder that, hey, guys, like the real world's happening while you're drinking eggnog and, you know, watching a Christmas story for the 13,000th time, which is what I do. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, so I don't know. I think I think it has a purpose. Um, is it going to immediately immobilize people to go march or start petitions or do whatever? I don't know. Definitely not. Uh, but I don't know. I think it's a good way to sort of like, put that in the subconscious of the mass population.
0: I'm curious to hear this, this Miley Cyrus, Sean Lennon thing that you're talking about before. This is a hard song to
1: cover. Oh, she does an amazing. I mean, it's, I I was really impressed.
0: So maybe hearing it with a new voice will make it feel less like a product of his time, because I really feel like this is not, to me, this does not feel like a timeless song. Like it, it melds into the background of our Christmas canon, whatever. But I don't think people think about it anymore when they do hear it in the same way that they think about
1: a newer interpretation of the same message. At least I hope so. I will say, thinking back to her performance, and maybe the song in general, her cover in general, yeah, you know, it wasn't highly politicized performance. I don't think it was meant to be. You know, she was wearing a very lovely, glamorous dress. There's no political statement with that whatsoever or at the backdrop or with anything i think it was especially having sean there it felt like more of an homage to johnny yoko which i mean she could have maybe done more but like also like you said it's christmas you know it's like you don't want to like get you know crazy like violent images or something you know yeah, along with you can song. only but, go
0: so far yeah with the song that you're gonna hear before frosty the snowman and after jingle bells
1: Right, exactly. So but it's funny, you know, talking about it in this context and like you said, it fades into the background and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting here thinking of it sort of in contrast to Wonderful Christmas time, because we're talking about the two of those songs. And it's like, are they more alike in that sense? I sort of think is of Happy Xmas as more I don't know, more I don't want to say important. (laughs) But that's the word that comes from mind. No, yeah, totally. Like more important than Wonderful Christmas time, but maybe it's not. Maybe They're both cut from the same cloth in that sort of sense that they've become both very much products of their time.
0: Anything that has the sound of its time in such almost an insular way, like if you think about it as opposed to like a Bing Crosby song, somehow that's gotten the moniker of timeless. And these songs have not neither of them have. You really hear 1970s, early 70s Vietnam War in this song. You really hear prog rock synthesizers in Wonderful Christmas Time. So maybe it has to do with the fact that they are not timeless. And that's okay. that they're not timeless. They don't have to be timeless to always be
1: around. For sure. For sure. But I think as you have people like The Shins or like Miley you know kind of reimagining <laughs> these songs you know for more for newer generations and that kind of thing it's like that gives them that timelessness even if the subject matter or the the composition or whatever isn't completely timeless it still makes them have a longer shelf life and gives them more relevance for different groups of people which is great
0: i think you need that with songs that don't fit into that classic timeless feel and that you know in order to keep this Feeling modern, I think newer people have to approach it and and try and put their own interpretation on it. Paul McCartney he was maligned for this song, and even though there are still many people who classify it as the worst, there are still a few more people I think who classify it as a hidden gem. And I do think that that is because of the efforts of people outside of Paul McCartney giving it a lift.
1: Well, I think you'll be happy to know that although people do like to talk shit about Wonderful Christmas Time. They also like to talk shit about Happy Xmas, even though it's more sort of revered in general. I found a great comment from John, that's it, uh, on Beatles Bible. And he said, This song is spectacularly awful. This is about Happy Xmas. I hate it so, so much. I could swing a bag full of cats against a tree and that would sound better. I do not advocate wow. swinging cats against trees, but that made me lol. A that is bit. funny. That is funny. I don't agree. I mean, because you could. But she could definitely I you would expect to see that like about Wonderful Christmas Time. No offense. Uh, But I've definitely seen that many times in different contexts about that song. But to see it about Happy Xmas is pretty funny. I do wonder if that has something to do with a little Yoko hate because you can hear her singing. Probably. Yeah. I mean, everything John ever did is tinged with Yoko hate. Still, it's really fucked up. Yeah. But yeah, that's probably part of it. Well, anyway, so Happy Xmas to wrap this up. Didn't really get much traction upon release, but occasionally you'll catch it charting every once in a while, especially because Christmas falls so close with the uh, anniversary of John's death. Sometimes it shoots up to the charts. It famously was number two. imagine it was number one right after John was murdered uh, in 1980. So it uh, has that little boost. Sadly, unfortunately, it does. Still kind of out there. Like Wonderful Christmas Time. You'll hear them all the time. I'm sure we've all heard them already shopping. Oh, yeah. It's amazing that John and Paul are still kind of like out there in this context, even though, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about their songs, you know, like too many people answered with how do you sleep or, you know, whatever. Now it's like Christmas Bites. Great.
0: I think there's something to be said about John and Paul and the Beatles generally redefining almost anything they set foot into. And maybe in a way they redefine the the definition of timeless. It's not the same as Bing Crosby, but we'll always have it with us and we'll always have it to think about and argue about and love and hate because it came from their minds.
1: I agree. I think that's a perfect way to sum this up.
0: So enjoy Christmas. Enjoy the holidays. Happy Xmas and have a wonderful Christmas time. Uh, Nice. Thanks so much for listening to BC The Beatles. We hope you enjoyed our Encore Christmas themed episode. We'll release one more archive for New Year's week, and then we'll be back with all new episodes in 2024.
1: Until then, as always, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now. Please, please give us a rating and review so other maniacs can find us.
0: And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter slash X, and TikTok. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And don't forget, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Gary Crimble to you, Gary Mimble to you. Getty Babel, dear Christmas, happy birthday, me too.